Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Eric Giuliani. And before we get to Eric, I have a few announcements to make. First and foremost, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there and you can see some articles that I've written. Have you seen my new Wall Street Journal article that came out last month? Well, I hope you have. I got a link to that at the website. There are photos of our guests at the website. There are links to their social media and websites. And there are links to our social media, which are, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. There's links to our Facebook page, where we are at Travel Tales Podcast. There are links to Stitcher Radio and to Apple Podcasts. But you can find us pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm talking places like Spotify or iHeartRadio or whatever the kids are into these days. Look for us there, and if you follow us on those platforms, I ask that you please give us a good rating. Give us a thumbs up. Say a few nice things. Since I'm not asking for money, that's all I've ever asked for, because as I've said many times, I'm a bad businessman. I do this out of the love of my heart. One day I might ask you for money, but I haven't gotten there yet. Until then, I ask you for likes and good reviews. Do you think maybe you'd be right for the show or know someone who would be right for the show? Maybe you'd like to write me and say nice things. Maybe you got travel questions you want to ask me. Whatever it is, if you want to reach me, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, Eric Giuliani is a guy who reached out to me. And let me tell you, he's got a long reach. The man is six foot, 10 inches tall. So it makes sense that his handle on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook are all travel tall. At Travel Tall. Easy to remember. Now, Eric is one of those people who was working at a regular 9 to 5. He was based in Southern Florida, where he still lives right now, and had a dream to chuck it all and travel the world. A lot of people dream about it, but they don't put it into action. But he made a plan. He wanted to be a travel photographer. He took a course in that. He wanted to learn how to market and promote himself. So he took a course in that, sold everything he owned, and took off on a journey around the world that took him about three to four years And his goal was to go around the world without ever flying. And he managed to do it. And he has great travel tales. Some of them that made my back hurt just listening to him. I've been on these buses in foreign countries. I've been on these trains in exotic places. None of it is comfortable. And I'm only six feet tall. I can't imagine going through it at 6'10". But yet he did it. And he came back and wrote a book about his trip. It's called Sky's the Limit. It's available on Amazon right now. We have a link to it at TravelTalesPodcast.com. Or you can go to Amazon and type in Eric Giuliani, spelled the same way, but no relation to the crazy ex-mayor who now drips hair dye all over himself, and buy his book. He talks about all the crazy things that happened to him on the road, romantic relationships, scary things, interesting things, and how he grew as a person through traveling. And as I've always said on this show, you grow a lot through traveling. You learn a lot about yourself, and certainly... You learn a lot about the other person you travel with, because <laughs> that'll test any relationship. So needless to say, he did most of his traveling solo. 
But it was great to meet him, and I'm glad he reached out to me. He got in on the Zoom call from his home in Fort Lauderdale. And hopefully one day we'll meet up in person when the world isn't so, well, disease-ridden. But until then, enjoy this conversation and follow Eric at Travel Tall on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And buy his book, Sky's the Limit. Please enjoy my chat with Eric Giuliani. Eric Giuliani. Now I'm saying that right, correct? Yep, perfect. Okay, tell the people your website and your book, and let's just get it right out of the way. Yeah, sure. So my website is TravelTall.com, which is TravelTall is my social media as well. And kind of where that comes from, just so everybody knows, is that I'm 6'10", um, so which will kind of play into some of our stories here in a minute because <laughs> 6'10", trying to travel around the world, brings its own challenges. But the name of the book, more importantly, and that's you know just been released on March 1st, is actually called Sky's the Limit. And so that to me is really, uh, you know, kind of the, the big important piece of, of what I've been doing lately is, is writing the book and, and just launched it, actually. Okay. Well, 6'10". That right <laughs> there. First of all, I'm, I'm six feet. And I know, especially through Asia, I felt like a giant. And in certain, I mean, certain like the uh, Japanese and Koreans have gotten, or South Koreans have gotten taller over the years as their diets have changed and everything else. But still, when you go to, say, Vietnam, Man, did I feel like uh, uh, King Kong walking. So 610, I can't imagine because planes are uncomfortable to me. Yes. So how do you, uh, your book, by the way, is about you didn't want to fly, right? It's around the world right. and you didn't fly. Yeah, and so I'll, is your height I'll, problem some of that? <laughs> no, believe me, flying would have actually been much easier because you at least they they have sympathy for me and they give me the exit row and like you can at least stretch out on the exit row. Now in a normal airplane seat, no chance I can't fit. It's it's awful. And if somebody has like the crazy audacity to like bring their seat back, I'm totally done. Uh, it just goes right, right into my knees. But the gist of my book was, is I went around the entire world. So across all seven continents, even Antarctica and the oceans in between without using an airplane. So I did it all using public transportation. The only time I actually had a car was when I crossed half of the United States and into Canada. But outside of that, all 50 countries that I went through, I relied on specifically public transportation and to get across the oceans, I actually used cargo ships. So I traveled across the Mediterranean, the Pacific, and the Atlantic on three different cargo ships. Um, so that's kind of the overall, in a nutshell, what I did. So on cargo ships, was this like a merchant marine kind of thing where you had to work on the ship? <laughs> no. Everybody thinks it's so easy. Like you just go down to the dock and you wave to the guys and be like, hey, I'll work. And, you know, you let me hop on. <laughs> like and the guys like the guys hanging out in front of Home Depot. You... <laughs> right. Yeah. Like not at all. Not at yeah. all. No, it's and especially after 9-11, like um, it's it was super strict actually getting onto a cargo ship. So I had to actually broker. I found a broker that would put me in contact with ships that allowed for passengers. And there really aren't many cargo ships that even allow for passengers. So they would find one going in the general direction around the general time that I was trying to go. And then they would offer me a ticket and you just had to buy a ticket like a regular, you know, bus or cruise or whatever. And um, you would get a regular room. But in order to get on the ship, you actually had to pass a physical 
within 90 days of sailing you had to, so you had to go to a doctor and do all that kind of stuff and you actually had to get really pretty intense medical insurance because if let's say you get sick in the middle of the pacific ocean you had to have some sort of insurance that would get you airlifted out of there and you know so there was like a ton of paperwork i was always having to fill stuff out go back and forth with the company that provided the ticket and then the actual shipping company and then when you get on the ship there's just a million things um, it's a nightmare. It sounds fun. It sounds glamorous, but it's 20 guys. They live. I got to thing. disagree with you. It doesn't sound fun. Okay, good. good <laughs> I got to disagree. It, a cargo ship does not sound fun. I mean, I've okay. worked cruise ships for the last uh, four True. years doing stand up, and I don't find those fun. So I can't exactly. imagine what a cargo ship. I mean, what are the rooms like? What is there to do? What I mean, is there any entertainment? What's the food like? No. <laughs> I'm laughing because when you said entertainment, no, zero <laughs> entertainment. So the room, I will give them credit. So the room was nice. I had a bed, I had a desk, I had a couch, and I had my own tiny little bathroom. So I can't complain about that. I mean, the mattress was rock hard. The couch and the chairs were broken, but at least like I had my own space. So that was kind of nice. The rest of the ship, you really don't have access to because it's it's all cargo. And you have just kind of the living section where the 20 crew members are. And then on two of the ships that I was on, there were two or three other passengers. So they also had rooms, but there's no TV. There's no Wi-Fi. There was a tiny, tiny little gym about the size of a prison cell, which you could work out, but you're sliding back and forth across the room, trying to lift these like 1960 Russian weights. And it was just like a total nightmare. And, you know, I obviously, if I'm traveling around the world, I have this like incredible wanderlust. And at first, the idea of a cargo ship going across the Pacific sounded not fun, but like interesting, you know, and then it's 30 days. And after day one, you it dawned on me like this really is awful. Yeah, <laughs> so, this, I mean, because I've done the longest at sea. I mean, I went to Antarctica on the cruise ship. Yeah. Working and that was about five days back from antarctica to say uh i think we were in punta del este we ended up coming back to yeah we were going to yeah. stop in the falklands on the way back but uh it was too rough yeah so we kept going on to punta yeah. del este but we left from oh god what's the uh, ushuaia ushuaia we left from ushuaia and that's still yeah. like five days to yeah and then I left from there too yeah. yeah and then i've done the crossing from um san diego to hawaii which is about five okay. days yeah but after about three at sea, I was ready to lose it, ready to touch land. So I, right. I hope the savings was that much that it was worth it. Oh, no, it actually, I spend more. So to go, what? because you have to think of it like this, you're spending a month at sea. So this is your room, your board, your meals. So it's expensive. It was like $1,600, $1,800. And then the other one going across the Atlantic, I think was 1400 I can't remember off the top of my head exactly. But a flight was much, much cheaper. The reason I did it, because my goal was literally not to fly. So this was the only way I could afford it. And the only way I could get across the oceans, like you said, the cruise ships, they don't really do that. And if they did, it would be super expensive. Yeah. So the crossings, I've never done an Atlantic crossing. I know a lot of people who, who've done, I've worked with a lot of ones that do it. They do it by season, you know, like once a year, easier, once or yeah. twice. Mm -hmm. And it's still, you know, Atlantic would be, I think it's about a week at sea, maybe. Yeah. So when I crossed the Atlantic on a cargo ship, I think it was like 10 or 11 days, you know, yeah. and, and it also kind of stopped. Uh, where do we stop? So I, went from, I went from Brazil to Spain. Yeah. Ooh, boy, yeah. oh boy. You didn't stop in like, uh, 
I thought I looked on your map. Did you stop in like Morocco or something? I did. So once I made it to Spain, I kind of backtracked a little bit and I went to back through Africa. So I went to Morocco. But when I crossed the Pacific, I left from Sydney, Australia, and we just did a quick six hour stop at the tip of New Zealand. And then about 10 days later, we did another six hour stop in Tahiti. And I wrote about this in my book, which was like literally wanting to run away from the ship. We had six hours in Tahiti and you're just like, this is amazing. And what you don't realize is like, by the time you go to a cafe, you check your Wi-Fi, you, you know, log in, look at your emails, three hours had gone by. And I'm like, oh my God, we have three hours to like enjoy Tahiti. And it just goes by in a flash and you really don't get to experience it because, you know, it's just a panic and you want to get off the ship. And then all of a sudden you're like racing to get back on it. I know. That's one of the problems I have about doing cruises is just exactly. once I got to a place that I liked, you just start to get around and yep. uh, you'll sit down and like, oh, it's happy hour. It's sunset. Let's have a drink. Nope. Five o'clock. Yeah. Got to get back to the. And, and uh, you don't really have a drink and yeah. you have like two hours. You're just I, for me, I'm always like my biggest thing is like being panicked. Like I'm going to get left behind and I can't get left behind in Tahiti. So like even we did actually stop for a couple beers and I was just like, I'm too nervous to really kind of enjoy it. And eventually, you know, you get on the ship and it's all good, but but it's nerve wracking. It's a hard life those guys have, you know, to, so to live that way. So hard. One of my fa- one of my favorite lines is we we were sailing across the Pacific. So every day or every two days, we would turn the clocks back one hour because you're sailing constantly through a different time zone. So it's obviously you know your body clocks out a little out of whack because every couple of days you're losing an hour, you gain an you whatever it is. And we, we actually sailed across the international dateline one day and it was a Tuesday and we turned the clock back 23 hours and it was just like, no, we have to live this same Tuesday <laughs> on this miserable ship again. And I looked at this Chinese deckhand, super nice guy, but he didn't speak English that well. And, and he, he looked at me and he summed it up with the most perfect thing I've ever heard anybody say. He was he just looked at me and shrugged his shoulders and he goes, tomorrow is today again. And I yeah. was just like, that's so great. Groundhog Day on this. Exactly. What did the what did the crew think of this giant American dude who happens to be on their cargo ship by choice? I mean, they're they're doing it for money. What are you doing it for? Exactly. Yeah. Well, the first thing they said, and this is kind of funny, is you know this ship. It was the first time they ever let passengers on, so there was only me and two other guys. And and this this really great Indian guy, he was like the uh, the second in command. He looked at me and he was just like so disappointed. I'm like, what's wrong? What's wrong? He's like. I just wish one of you was a woman <laughs> because they're on that ship for nine months at a time. And it's, you know, you've got these three kind of burly looking guys coming on to join you. And yeah, they, they didn't really understand why somebody would want to do that. Um, the two guys that other, that also had tickets were kind of doing these adventure kind of crazy travels as well. So yeah, it was just the three of us. And to be honest, like everybody just kept to themselves, the guys working on the ships, who were nice were just kind of miserable like that's what they do every day they're at sea for 30 days then they turn around they're at sea for 30 more days so like they just did they just did their thing and kind of kept to themselves and and all the passengers likewise and no women at all on the ship (laughs) no no it was all men and that's one of the things too i had written about is like there's kind of it's it's pretty intense there's a lot of testosterone a lot of guys not very happy and and i think the crew kind of gets into some big time disagreements oh yeah um, you know and and it can be tricky. It's they can't just get off the ship if if things aren't going well. <laughs> all that yeah, all that uh, raping and pillaging the pirates did starts to make sense, you know. <laughs> right, and just right. or when they get offshore and just go completely nuts. It just yeah, exactly. I get it. I totally get it. Navy yeah. guys, same thing. 
Right. Um, so let's let's go back to the beginning. We'll get back to the uh, crossings, but uh, you're are you a base? You're based in Miami, correct, or Fort Lauderdale? Yeah. So at the time, I was living in Miami, and I was working kind of a corporate career. I was in charge of basically summing it up, teaching teachers how to use a computer reading program with their students. So that's what I had been doing before all this. And um, I just really didn't enjoy what I was doing. I wanted to kind of totally transform my life and, and to tap into some sort of creativity. So it wasn't necessarily just about traveling. I also wanted to become a writer, a photographer, and a travel filmmaker. And the crazy part of that, which is you know explored in the book, is that I had zero experience in any of those areas. And I went to this Photography 101 class at Miami-Dade Community College, and I was the only person in that class that didn't own a camera. And I hold up my iPhone 4 at the time, and I told the teacher, well, I'm just going to go through the class with this because I can't afford a camera. And everybody kind of laughed. And that was the start of this whole journey. And then ultimately, you know, I practiced with that and became a good photographer off of the iPhone and then bought a real camera and so forth and so on. But that was really the genesis of how this started. I didn't like my corporate career. I wanted to get out of it. I want, I love to travel, but I also wanted to do something creative with my life that I hadn't been doing. What was the time frame on this by the time you hatched the idea of, of leaving your job to when you left and what year did you leave? Yeah. So great question. So I gave myself at the beginning, I actually took all the pictures off my wall in my living room and I wallpapered it with this chart paper. And I put this huge like to-do list on there, which was learn photography, sign up for photography 101, learn travel writing, sign up for travel writing courses. And same with filmmaking and, and building a website and a blog and all that. And I gave myself one year to learn all of those skills. So uh, this would have been, I left in 2000. Oh my gosh, the years are starting to blend together. Uh, 2000, hold on. So I came back in 2017. So I left in 2014. So I gave myself one year, which was basically 2013 to learn all of these skills. And I also needed to save money because like I was no millionaire and I'll get to this in a second, but I needed to save a lot of money because obviously to do long-term travel around the world is extremely expensive. And it ended up that I couldn't learn all those skills in one year. I couldn't save enough money in one year. So it ended up becoming a year and a half. And then once I, I never felt comfortable, but once I felt like I at least had like a background in filming photos and, and writing, and I had never even done a paid job in any of these areas yet, I, I came up with the idea, which is even though I don't have enough money, let me try to barter my way around the world. And so it's a little bit of a long story, but what I ended up doing before I left is I'm in Miami and I came up with the idea, let me email every hotel in Cape Town. So Cape Town is my official starting point because it was the southernmost point of South Africa. So let me email every hotel in Cape Town and I'm just going to offer to take pictures of the rooms, of their restaurant, of their lobby, if they have a pool, whatever. And I'm also going to offer to make a film. Now, keep in mind, I had never done this at all, like ne not even one time. And so I looked up all the emails on TripAdvisor, sent out all of these emails before bed, thinking they're just going to laugh at me because the portfolio that I had sent in my emails was just all Miami Beach sunrise shots of, you know, the beach. Mm -hmm. Nothing at all was of a hotel or anything like that or travel related even 
So very, very weak portfolio. And believe it or not, the next morning when I woke up, I had three replies and three hotels in Cape Town had said, sure, we'll host you for a week. Come and, you know, do the photos for us or make a film for us. And it was literally a miracle. And I used that technique to get all the way around the world. So I never actually had to pay for a hotel room the full three years that I was traveling because I would just duplicated what I did in Cape town. And I would send emails out to the next city, the next city, the next city. And it, even in remote parts of Africa where there was only two or three hotels, thankfully miracle, one of them would always say yes. And I could go for the week or four days or however many days they would take me and then plan the next stop. That's amazing. So was it always uh, photos or did they want videos and how long, like one minute videos or 30 seconds? Yeah, exactly. Videos? Exactly. So I would just do whatever they wanted. So um, believe it or not, the first hotel actually said, you, you don't have to do anything. We'll just, you know, keep you here for the week. And if you mention us on your travel blog, that's all you have to do. And I was just like, okay, cool. <laughs> so the for very first one, I actually didn't do anything, but it would normally be about a two minute video. And um, I would normally do about 50 to 60 pictures. And if they did a tour, like through their company or, you know, through their lobby and they had a tour company, I would go on the tours for free and, and do a video of the tour. So I got to see a lot of different things um, by doing that as well. And slowly, I was able to then, of course, build a portfolio that actually reflected hotels and travel and stuff like that. And I was able to use that, you know, moving forward. Was the bartering just with hotels or could you do it with, say, restaurants or tour companies or national parks or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it would have worked. I did it with tour companies. And then I did it. One, one of the things I was really interested in was Great White Sharks. And I found this company, not a company, but um, this group that it's called the South African Shark Conservancy. And I emailed them and said, hey, I would love to come and learn about Great Whites and, you know, work with you guys. They had, you know, this really cool headquarters in South Africa. And, uh, you know, they said, sure, come, we'll put you in the house where our interns are staying, which is this beautiful house, actually. And I made a film for them. And the very first thing they had me do was jump in a cage with great whites and try to film underwater. And this is like week three of me doing this in, in Africa. And I've got a little GoPro and there's a great white literally biting the cage two inches away from my face. And I'm like, this is nuts. Like, this is actually nuts. And it turned out to be an incredible experience. And I made a cool video for them. But a lot of it was just kind of learning on the fly and just taking this crazy leap of faith. And, and luckily, I shouldn't even say luckily, because it was a lot of work, but every step kind of unfolded, you know, as I would go. Was that in uh, Gansby or that's where I, that's where I went exactly. diving. I did yeah, the shark yeah, cage yeah. down there. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah I, I went down in that thing. The six what person. It was cool. You know, I, I thought, uh, you know, I'm a diver. So I thought literally we were oh. going to be submerged, but really, you know how you're just hanging halfway on the side of the boat you're on the side. Yeah. And then they call yeah. you, you hold your breath and you go down. Yeah. yeah ours, ours bit the side of the cage as well. But yeah. I, I've talked to a couple of people on here over the years, uh, one who worked with uh, an outfit called Shark Angels and uh, based out of South Africa as well. So they're mixed on whether that's good for the sharks or is it yeah. bad? You know, I, and one in one way, it it makes people appreciate them more. But the other way they say, well, you shouldn't be feeding them or chum in the waters. Right. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where yeah, you fall on the side either. of that. I mean, this group was a was a great group and they seemed to think it was okay. So I just kind of right. go, go off of what they said. But you're right. Like, I mean, I don't know how the people free dive with great whites. Like I've seen videos of that. Yeah. And it's just absolutely terrifying. Because so, I was scared in a cage. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it was, I'm, I'm glad you said you started the, the trip in South Africa because I looked on the map you had and it was just like that one line down to South Africa. I was like, wait a minute. I didn't see any return line from there. So, you must well, have, so I just assumed in my head you started from Miami, but I guess you No, So smart, technically, yeah. yeah, it can be a little misleading if you look at the lap so, or the, the map and where the lap and the loop connects is actually in London. So I started, yeah. I actually technically flew to Cape Town. And then from there it was, okay, let's get across all seven continents with no flights. So I came all the way up through Africa, cut through the Middle East, up to London and then looped east all the way back around. So technically where I had come full circle was London Victoria Station. And I had, you know, that was kind of the connecting of the dots, if you will. So the first ocean crossing was the Pacific or was it the Atlantic? Well, technically the first one would have been, I mean, the Mediterranean Sea. Oh, okay. And then I crossed from um, Singapore I took a cruise ship because the the cargo ship that I was ticketed on to get across from Singapore to Australia had been sold. So I'd already bought the ticket and they were like, we're stopping all all passengers effective immediately. And so I was scrambling because I was like on my way to Singapore, ready to get on the ship. And I was like, how am I going to keep going? Thankfully, there was a cruise line. I believe it was Princess Cruises happened to have a cruise that I could get on. It was pretty expensive, though, because it took me up and around the direction that I had just come from took me up and around Southeast Asia and then dropped me in Perth. And then I crossed Australia and then the big crossing was the Pacific. So that would have been first North America, South America, down to Antarctica, and then back up across the Atlantic, Morocco, and then reconnecting in London. So yeah, after, after the first ocean crossing on the cargo ship, (laughs) is that, wasn't there a part of you that just went, okay, I made my point with this. I'm going to fly next time. I mean, this no, is, I mean, because I was just like super determined. To I mean, do it course, the second time is really of course, tough. I didn't want to do it. Like yeah. it wasn't fun. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I like think of it this way. I had already come like, let's say uh, 55,000 miles. So why not just suck it up for the last Atlantic ocean crossing? And what was even more annoying is as I was with this great French couple that were on it and they couldn't get enough of the cargo ship. They didn't want to get off. And I'm like, what is wrong with you guys? Like, what are you enjoying about this? And they're like, we wish we could stay on longer. <laughs> I'm like, what? So they loved it so much that it bothered me. But, you know, it was actually good to be on the ship with nice people that second time around. But um, it was rough. It was rough. Well, I mean, I did say this about, you know, when I tell people about the downtime on a ship where the Internet is uh, pretty much either slow or non-existent, you do get a lot of reading done or in your case, probably editing. Right. I did a ton of writing. (laughs) And writing. and Exactly. You do get a lot done and you don't realize what a distraction the internet is until right. you don't have it anymore and be like, wow, I'm all of a sudden I'm really productive. I'm not surfing YouTube and all this exactly. other stuff. So exactly. Did um this take you, you said three years, four years? Yeah, it took three full years. So from the time I started in um in Cape Town until I looped all the way back around to London, took three exactly three years. Yeah. And never went home in between or anything like that. Well, so I I had sold everything. I dumpstered everything that was left over, didn't have a car, didn't have a house, didn't have an apartment or condo or anything. Um, when I did come through the United States, though, I did pass back through Florida and I did stay with my parents for a little while because they live here. And then I took a cruise from uh 
Port Everglades, which is in Fort Lauderdale, really close to where I happen to live right now. I know it very well. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I'm sure you know that that work pretty well. And then I took that cruise um, all the way down through the Panama Canal and that dropped me off in Chile. Okay. So uh, that was the carnival? One, I saw some photos. Was that a carnival yes. cruise? Okay. No, that well, might have been what celebrity hmm. carnival. I, they all start to blend together. I'd have to pull it up. <laughs> I'd have to pull it up real quick. So you did it, go through the. Uh, so you did the Caribbean, and then it probably did it hit like Cartagena, it, and then it say, went yeah, through so it, Panama. Okay, Panama, and then it did um, Ecuador. Lima? Yeah, I was gonna say Lima. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it did all that um, on the way, and a couple stops in Chile, and then dropped me off there. But I can. So Double Chile check. is on my list. It's one of the, the the ones I haven't been to down there. And it looks amazing. I mean, I got a little bit of it when I went to, you know, Patagonia, when I went to Ushuaia, but I was just catching it. I didn't have time to explore. Yeah. So uh, was this mostly uh, going down Chile and, and through South America? Was this bus Bus yeah, travel. So, and just to double to, to go back, it was the Celebrity Infinity that dropped okay. me off. And um, yeah, so the way that I got, and so this was also really crazy because I had bartered my way onto a expedition ship slash cruise ship that was going from Ushuaia, so the southernmost part of Argentina, to Antarctica, and that was really like the completion of my dream. Like this was kind of a miracle that I got on this cruise ship because they're very expensive to go to um, Antarctica. It was like $10,000 was the cheapest ticket. Yeah, it's a lot. And what I do was not worth $10,000. I'm just being honest. Like, I think I'm a pretty good photographer, but like not that good. And um, hey, I was being paid to be on there and I'm not worth $10,000. <laughs> right. If you saw my shows on there, you you wouldn't, you want What's- your money back. What's the deal with these penguins? Mm-hmm. Um, no, but uh, so what happened was, is when this company, um, Antarpoli, uh, Antarpoli is the name of the company, when they said, you can go on the cruise for free, you got to get to Ushuaia. I only had like two months. So I had to figure out how am I going to get from, uh, it was, I found out in Pittsburgh, how am I going to get from Pittsburgh to the southernmost point of Argentina in like a two or three month window without flying. And it turned out to be nuts because thankfully that celebrity cruise dropped me off in Chile, but I still had like 10,000 miles to go. And you know, like how rough some of those roads are in Patagonia. There's, they're not actual roads. Yeah. (laughs) And I love Chile. It's, it's one of my favorite countries, but you have to zigzag back and forth to get to Ushuaia between Argentina and Chile. So you're constantly crossing borders and it gets confusing. But anyway, I, when I landed in Chile, I had two weeks to get to the southernmost point. And that sounds like a lot of time, but I'm telling you, if you go by a South American bus, it took forever. And it was one of the hardest stretches of travel. I mean, Africa by far is the hardest. Nothing will ever beat Africa by public transportation. Oh, God. But a very close second was this trip because the buses, for whatever reason, they seem to only leave in the middle of the night. So I was always getting on a bus at like 1 a.m. and it would be a 20-hour bus ride or it'd be a 15-hour bus ride or it'd be a 30-hour bus ride. So I did these crazy bus rides. I believe one week one week there was 75 hours on a bus or multiple buses getting 
all the way to Ushuaia. And I made it with two days to spare, which was a miracle. <laughs> and um, I had to rent, of course, all the clothes that you need for, you know, the harsh conditions. And then I just had a day to sleep and then get on the ship. But I made it. It was it was awesome. It was not something I'd want to do again going no. quickly. <laughs> but I got there. And it's six foot ten, a bus in South Africa, South America. What was I mean, what were the seats like? Yeah, Did you lay you know, lay out on them? No, I mean, no, no, it's funny. No, can you lay out? I mean, the worst buses, to be honest, were in Malawi. And these are literally like tin can minivans. And there's 15 people in eight seats. And like one of the seats in, in one of the buses was a bucket turned upside down, you know? And it's just like, there's just genuinely no room. One of my favorite pictures I ever took was, uh, you know, I was sitting on the bus and this old 90 year old woman, she was like literally laying in my lap and my legs were just wrapped around her so that my knees were like past her knees. And like, that's just how, and I took a picture from like straight up uh, above us and shooting down and it was just, there was no room. And it's just one of those things. Like this was my dream. I wanted to travel this way. I wanted to see the world. So you just kind of got to suck it up. There's no air conditioning in these buses. It wasn't fun. I'm not going to lie. I didn't really enjoy it. But on the other hand, like I did enjoy it because like I was really driven to make it around the world and complete this, you know, initial dream kind of thing. Public bus in Africa. I mean, I've been through, you know, a bit of Africa and I can't I've taken a couple buses. But yeah. I can't imagine being on them a, a really extended long time and I can't imagine what they were thinking you were doing and they, oh. they must have been amazed that you were in there and asking you why why are you doing yeah, this? people just had no idea like the looks i would get especially in a country like uganda people just like literally would look through me for whatever reason their eyes in uganda was just like what it, like they thought i was a ghost you know um but i just never fit you know and that's just it is just being 610 you just kind of get used to to never fitting in in things it's hard to buy clothes like um, you know, I wasn't picking up new jeans at the mall there because nothing would ever fit. Um, but I got two quick stories, which is my favorite seatmate ever. One time we were stopping, this was in Mozambique at kind of this rare rural intersection. And this guy goes by, he's got a bow and arrow strapped across his chest and he's got, you know, arrows in his hand. And the guy next to me like waves him down and then they start to kind of argue and barter in some language that I have no idea what it is. And eventually the guy looks at me and he points out the window and like at a baseball game, you know, when you order like a beer and a, a beer and a hot dog and they pass it down the aisle to the guy in the middle of the, the, the seats. Well, like I had to reach out the window and pull this bow and arrow <laughs> bloodstained bows or bloodstained arrows, by the way pull it in the guy. And then I'm passing the money back. So the guy literally bought this bow and arrow off this guy's back at this rural intersection while we're just waiting for two minutes and just crazy stuff like that. People would get onto the bus in Africa with a, with an actual stainless steel kitchen sink and sit with it on their lap for like 10 hours. So, you know, these buses just, you know, people are just trying to get from point A to point B and live their lives. And here I am this really out of place, super tall white guy, just trying to get to the next place on my, you know, journey. And so you just come across like these really interesting things. And that was part of the fun too, is like you just see these really incredible people traveling with, with you. I remember uh, a, a waiting for a bus in Africa and I can't remember the country. Maybe it was Tanzania. No, it was Kenya. And they had it down because, you know, nothing runs on time. 
Nothing. <laughs> that was bus, the next point. The bus yes. is never on time. And so they got it down to where it's like, no matter how long it's late, you would go up there and say, when, when is it coming? When is it? And they, and they would say oh, about 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> and they knew that was just long enough to buy them some time right. and shut you up because then you come back, it, it doesn't come. And then 20 minutes later, you come back and say, oh, about 15, 20 minutes more. Yeah. And this goes on for like three times. Oh, they can't just it. say, it's, hey, look, it's going to be an hour. Because I think least, people will get pissed. My least favorite part, and it didn't dawn on me until like maybe a couple months in, but especially in Mozambique and Malawi is, you know, you would get on the bus at like 6 a.m. And you know you're going to have a 12-hour bus ride, okay? And you, they tell you the bus is leaving at 6 a.m. So you're there early, you're on the bus. And what they don't tell you is that the bus isn't going to leave until they sell every single seat on that bus and then some. And I just remember... It's not like an airport where like if your flight's delayed, you can get a, go get a coffee and you can walk around and hang out or there's some souvenirs. It's You sit on this unair conditioned bus with no wind coming through the windows and you don't know when the, all the seats are going to get sold. And I just remember sitting like one day specifically in Malawi. We were sitting there for four hours without even moving. And I was just like, this is this is mentally taxing <laughs> just sitting here. We have we haven't even started the 12 hour journey yet. So stuff like that was just brutal. I can't. Well, first of all, I mean, now I'm in my 50s, so I can't imagine doing this now. In my 20s, I could have done it. So how old of a guy are you that you could do? Yeah, this? sure. So so now I'm I'm 40. Sounds weird to say. But um, so when I started this initially, I was 33. So I did right. it from, from like 33, 34 up until I was 36, 37. So, um, yeah, you know, right around that that time. <laughs> but I wouldn't want to do it now. Like, no. I'm, I'm, yeah. Just I'm wait. Let me tell yeah. you. <laughs> Uh, so, okay. So you went through, uh, Africa and how did you, I just got back from Africa. I was in Rwanda and Uganda and, uh, Ethiopia and Zimbabwe in 2019. That was my last big trip. Yeah. Um, I loved it, but it can wear on you. Uh, I mean, Africa is beautiful and (laughs) difficult at the same time. I mean, it's just like, once you're out in the country and it's magical, but the cities and the infrastructure and the, I mean, there's a lot of pain there, mm-hmm. you know, and their history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what were your highlights and what were your favorite places? And what were some of the lowlights that you were like, you know what, I'm good if I never come back to this place? Yeah. You know, so Africa just taught me so much, taught me so much. And, and to me, I, I started there and I wanted to start there specifically because I knew it would be the hardest part of the world to travel around. And like, I knew if I could get through that, then I could get through anything. And so that really did, that was the truth. And I, I really found who I was in Africa because of the obstacles. Like there were so many things which are really detailed in the book. Like I didn't, I couldn't get visas to travel into, um, uh, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt. So I had to go and hang out in Uganda for 40 days and mail my passport back to the United States while my parents could send in the paperwork that I had filled out in Africa and sent back. So I'm in Uganda for 40 days with no passport. And now this is like obviously super stressful, but there was also a lot of terrorist attacks at this time. So let's start with kind of some of the negatives. Um, Al-Shabaab had attacked and killed 148 people at Garissa State University, which is in Kenya. And then they had also attacked people and killed them in Kampala in Uganda, which is where I was. And they were specifically looking for Westerners at this time when I happened to be there. So it was really, really unsettling because I'm obviously, you know, like this huge American flag flapping in the wind at 610 walking around. And I don't have a passport. I'm stuck in Uganda. And the only way to get from 
when I made it back to Nairobi with my passport, the only way to get from Nairobi to the next country north, which is Ethiopia, was to go on a bus for 24 hours directly through or in the region where Garissa State University was and 148 people had literally just been murdered two or three days before that. And so there's a huge alert out for terrorists. And just in general, this bus that I was about to get on is normally dangerous because that bus, when it gets to the border of Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia, there's bandits in general that come and attack this bus because it's out in this barren wilderness. So it, honest to God, felt like I was risking my life at that point to kind of get on this bus for 24 hours to go through Garissa State University up to the border um, and then cross through Ethiopia, which I, again, could have literally just gone to the airport and flown out of danger because I did have my passport at that point. But it was really like a test of who I am. Why am I on this journey? Am I going to risk, you know, take a big risk? Am I going to go for it? And, you know, I did. And all of those, you know, really challenging times, especially in Africa, when it's just everything is so, so much harder there. Just even getting to the bus station from the hotel is hard, you know, um, getting food that you think is is going to be edible. Like one of the really great stories I have is, and this is detailed in the book, is we stopped at a rest stop in Ethiopia, middle of nowhere, literally. You couldn't be anymore in nowhere. And we get off and we go into this little ramshackled restaurant and the guy next to me, um, you know, everybody's like smiling and looks all real happy. And it's like, there's this butcher and I'm just thinking, what in the heck? Like, and there's this blood stained meat everywhere and there's flies everywhere. And I'm just like, this is really weird. Like, what is going on? Why is this meat in this window? Like when you go to the grocery store, you know, like we have lunch meat in the window. Well, this is just like raw meat. It's not refrigerated. And I'm like, what is going on? And the guy next to me, he like looks at the butcher and he like motions and he cuts him a piece of raw meat and the guy pops it into his mouth. And I'm just like, what is happening? This is absolutely insane. Like I'm going to puke. Like he's eating raw meat. Right. And then I look around the whole restaurant and everybody has huge piles of raw meat on these silver serving trays. And that's what they're eating. Nothing was cooked. And I'm just like, I will die if I eat this, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, uh, so what I ended up eating a lot of the time was, especially in Ethiopia was, uh, was eggs. <laughs> so yeah. made sure they were cooked with a shell on it. But, um, you know, you would have these just incredible experiences. Um, and it was just so challenging. And also keep in mind, like I'm trying to become a photographer, a writer, a travel filmmaker. And I'm also trying to travel this really, really arduous way with the public transportation. So the greatest thing was just the challenges and then ultimately overcoming them. And when I ended up getting to Egypt and to the pyramids, it was this really like seminal moment. Like you can look back and say, oh my God, I just crossed all of Africa. And then of course I didn't know how to get to Europe from there, which is a whole separate story, but I had made, I had completed my first goal. And you know, the, what I did love about Africa, you know, the people, you know, obviously beautiful and you form great friendships and it's just, you know, what I've always noticed there was just like the amount of love between the family members and the way people interact and, and really take care of each other. And I think part of that is missing in our modern day society here. So it's just kind of like a different, obviously it's a whole different vibe. Um, but I did enjoy it. Would I ever want to do something like that again? No chance. No chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's odd about the meat in Ethiopia because uh, the food in Ethiopia is fantastic. I mean, I, right. it's one of my favorite things. And you don't have to eat 
meat at all. I mean, there's so much great vegetarian food. And so I'm so surprised that they were eating raw meat and oh, not yeah. just piles of just vegetarian curry and, and injera bread. Right. That, you know. That's exactly. So there was the bread at the table. And I had put this in the book, too, is like there were so many flies on the injera bread. I was oh. like, I'm not even going to try to eat the bread. But like, think we're literally like in the desert at this point. And so it wasn't like your traditional like I'm not right, in right. Ababa, I'm not in a big city. So, you know, and I believe it started when, you know, during wartime is that if you started a fire to cook the meat in Ethiopia, it would obviously alert people of your positioning. And uh, so I believe that's how it came to be like, let's just eat this without, ooh, you know, boy. without cooking it. And I, when I eat, when I eat meat, it's well done. Like I don't want anything. Oh, you kill well. it. <laughs> did, so did you get any in all this time, any food poisonings? And you- So I made a stupid mistake on these long bus rides, which is I have mm. like this big fear of, I'm afraid if I drink a lot of water, I'm going to have to run up to the front of the bus and be like, hey, can you pull over? I got to relieve myself on the side of the road. And I'm just embarrassed to do that. So like I had this really dumb idea at the beginning, which is just don't drink anything and you won't have to go to the bathroom. Well, that backfired because what I didn't realize is that if you don't drink any water and you drink a coffee at the start of the day and you get on a bus for 15 hours and it's hot you sweat everything out and you get severe dehydration. So I made this mistake like three times. You would think making it once is enough, but I made this mistake three times. And so I got severe dehydration three times. And uh, one time was in Cambodia after a super long bus ride. Another time um, was in uh, Malawi. And then I can't remember where the, the third one was, but so yeah, those were not fun. Uh, that's, you know, usually 48 hours of kind of pain and misery. Um, so those were, those were the big ones. And then I avoided kind of like anything too major, um, <laughs> but, uh, I've got a crazy story, which I can finish at the end with uh, about how I did get food poisoning in India, which is unrelated oh, to I did. this, this trip. Yeah. But this is a classic story. So I, maybe I can finish <laughs> okay. with that one. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> So was there ever a point that you wanted to just say, you know what? I think I made I made my point here. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I miss my family. I'm I'm going to go home. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there there was definitely moments and that's hopefully like, you know, some kind of climaxes in the book if you will is, you know, when things are really tough. Uh, I had missed a train in Siberia. I got stranded there in the middle of winter time. I couldn't figure out how to buy a ticket. Um, You know, at the time, my grandmother had fallen and become very sick. And, you know, everything was going wrong. The motherboard in my camera short-circuited. The girl that I was kind of trying to reconnect with, in who was a big part of the beginning of my book, uh, had said she didn't want to see me again. And it all came together in one moment. And I missed my train in Siberia. And there's like no way to book it in the middle of January. Or when was it? Uh, December. And it just, you know, and it was just like every wall was caving in. And sure, so there were definitely times that I wanted to quit. The other being, you know, uh, in, in Kenya, when that Garissa State University attack happened, you know, those were two very terrible times. Um, I had to cross the Sinai Peninsula, which was a very dangerous part of, of Egypt to cross at the time. So yeah, there was a lot of times I wanted to quit, but I never ever felt like I'm actually going to quit because I felt like this dream that I had was so big and so deep and so meaningful. Like I was just going to do it no matter what, like literally you were going to have to kill me to not make it around the world. Like I was willing to risk it all. I sold everything. I I didn't want to go back to the old guy who I used to be the career that I had. I put all my chips in the center and I kept them there the whole time. Well, I'm going to say this right now. You may have picked the wrong time of year to go through Siberia 
<laughs> Big you mistake. Could, you couldn't have Big saved mistake. that in the summer. You couldn't have done that in the summer. I mean, you know, December in Siberia. What were you, you thinking? You are so right. And and this is what I was thinking. Like that better uh, been a cheap ticket. I'm just going to go quick <laughs> and get done. And it was this is an incredible part of the story. So when I got on the train, when I reboarded the train in Siberia, uh, it was the first time I had come in contact with a Chinese train because it takes you from Russia to China. So I was thinking it was going to be a Russian train, like the train that it took me from Moscow. It's a Trans-Siberian Express, right? Yeah. So, but this is a Chinese train. So I, nobody's on it. I'm the, like literally the only human being besides the people that work on it. And like one other Russian family was on it and it was like empty. So I'm the only idiot on this train because of course, who would do this in December? It's, <laughs> it was negative four degrees out. I'm not exaggerating. And when I get into my room the first time and the train, of course, it leaves at 1am. So I'm on the train tracks at 1am, only person on the train tracks, get in my train and I'm just like, it's freezing in here. And I'm trying to talk to this Chinese conductor and he has no idea what I'm saying. And I'm like, why is it so cold? He, he says the heat is on or whatever. And I'm like, there's no way. And I look in the windowsill that is in my um, cabin and I'm the only person in there and stuffed in the windowsill is tissue paper. That's the <laughs> insulation. And I'm just like, and I put this in the book. I'm like, that's the moment my like unquenchable thirst for travel had been finally quenched. I was like, this is the thing that's keeping me warm is tissue paper in Siberia in December. And it was just a nightmare. And I ended up having to sleep with like all my clothes on. I pulled all the blankets I could find. So I had four blankets on. I slept with my sneakers on for like three or four days. It was awful, awful. So it takes about three, four days to go across. No, it actually takes seven days. So the first, so when I left from Moscow, so from Moscow to Siberia, which the city you stop in is called Novosibirsk, which I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but that is uh, two or three days. So from Moscow to Siberia, that's where then I got off. Cause I was like, Hey, I want to check out Siberia, which was the big mistake. Didn't need to do that. And um, that's when everything went wrong, missed the train and I had to rebook it. And then to rebook it, to go from Siberia to Beijing, that's another five days. So the full train ride takes anywhere between seven or eight days, depending on which way you go. But you know, that last leg was five days. And this is a, a funny story. I didn't have any food. So every day I would go back and there was a dining cart or dining car and I would order food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it was super expensive because you know, you're know you being held hostage because there's no other food. And when we got to Mongolia, and I don't know if it was having to do with Mongolia because we crossed through Mongolia, but I went to the back. This is like a cartoon. I went to the back of the train, opened the door or like looked out the window and the dining cart was removed. And I'm just like, uh, how am I going to eat for the final three days of this trip? Like what, where's the, or what, what's going on? And like, there's no one to give you food. So I had no food for the last two days, I believe it was. And what I ended up doing when we stopped in Mongolia um, at just a train station, we had like 10 minutes to get off. And I ran up to this woman, she was selling noodles, just like ramen noodles. And I'm like, give me all your noodles. She has no idea what I'm saying. I'm like, give me all your noodles. And, and so I try to pay her and all I have, I don't even realize I'm in Mongolia. So all I have is Russian. What is it? Rupees. I don't remember. Rubles. What it's called. Rubles. Yeah. And <laughs> I try to give it and she's like, no, 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 no. And so she wouldn't take it. And I'm like this, I'm trying to explain to her, this is the only food I'm going to have for the next two days. Like, please, I'm starving. 
And she's like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, there's nowhere to change the money. The train's going to leave in five minutes. So I just literally put in her hand all the rubles and I took, <laughs> I took <laughs> the rubles and I ran back and I'm not proud of this, but I was, I would have died. So, um, so I took the noodles back onto the train. I think I took like four or five things of it. And then as soon as I got to Beijing, embarrassingly enough, the first thing I did was go right across the street from the train station to, to a McDonald's and I ordered like five cheeseburgers. Yeah. I mean, that's, I always have a no McDonald's uh, policy ever or KFC or any kind of thing whenever I travel around the world. But yeah. at some times there are those moments where it's this beacon. Of, it's a beacon. If anything, because you know, it's probably clean enough to eat, you For know, sure. I, I mean, and it's not going to get you sick, but boy, that sounds awful. Everything yeah. about that story just sounds awful. So crossing, um, there were two really tough parts crossing the Pacific ocean was really rough. And then also the whole trans Siberian for a week, which, and then turned into two weeks. Cause I missed the train in, in December was another really rough part. What about uh visa hassles or dealing with uh, cops or any, do you have to bribe anybody or do they, get, they shake you down for great stories about this. First of all, you can't just show up at a country and expect to be let in. So you have to get a visa. You know, even though we have American passports, you have to get a visa, I would say like 60% of the time. So it depends where you're going. But um, a lot of times I didn't have my route plan. So I was just going on the fly and I was trying to go to embassies and consulates along the way to get it. But like I said earlier, I was stuck in Uganda for 40 days getting my paperwork squared away in the States. But a really great story about getting shaken down was um, when I was going to leave Mozambique. And this is in my book is that um, the, the, it was a really rinky dink little, you know, immigration officer there was one guy in there. It's like the size of a hut. You go in with your passport. It's just me and uh, the girl that I was traveling with at the time. And he's like, where's your entry stamp to Mozambique? Like you don't have it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like we came through South Africa into Mozambique. I remember we got it stamped. Here's the, here's the stamp from me leaving South Africa. And he's like, yeah, but where's the one where you entered that same day? into Mozambique. And I'm like, I don't know, it should be in there. Like, we have to find it. He's like, it's not here. So what I ended up realizing, it's a long story, but I'll give you the short version is that when I crossed into Mozambique, the first day, they only pretended to stamp my passport. So they make this thud. And you if you don't check it, which I didn't check it, who would think they're not going to stamp it. So I don't check it. So that on the reverse end, when you try to leave, the whole scam is now you're here illegally. Now we've got you. So turns out at the Mozambique, you know, immigration office, as I'm trying to leave to get to Malawi, I have to now bribe this guy. He thinks I'm here illegally, but obviously he knows he's in on the scam because he probably does it the reverse route. And I ended up having to bribe him $200 American cash just to get the entry stamp. And then two seconds later, he flips the page and puts the exit stamp. And I'm just like, this is maddening, you know? <laughs> so stuff like that would happen all the time. And, um, you know, you have to be really careful when you're crossing in and out of countries and you got to make sure you have all the paperwork squared away. And one of the big things I did, I didn't do was Google. So like, I didn't Google like tourist things and, you know, where to go and what to do. Uh, but the one thing I did check was the State Department website. So I tried to make sure I had the visa stuff squared away. But it's just like it's it's a mountain of paperwork all the time. Did uh, I mean, how are your language skills around awesome. the, <laughs> nothing, nothing, not even a little bit? I mean, no, no. Spanish, my, at least. No. And I live in oh, my man. I lived in Miami. Yeah, so you, live, you live in Miami. You should know the the language. 
No, but and it was also like I was moving so quick and um, not even that I was moving quick, but like I was only in places for, you know, I'm not I'm in 50 different countries, so I'm not going to be able to learn 50 different dialects and languages and stuff like that. So sure, it would have been nice to have like a base of, you know, a couple languages, but I just didn't have it. So, I mean, you talked about accommodations in terms of hotels that you you bartered and that did you do hostels, too? Yeah. So what I would do is I'd go to TripAdvisor and I would literally start at five-star hotels and I would get their hotel website. So I'd click and click and click and find their, whatever their marketing department web, you know, email was. And I started five stars and I'd go to four stars and three stars, two stars, one star hostels. And I would email them all. Like it was really like, you know, it was a lot of dedication to do that kind of thing, but obviously it was worth it because I would always get one. Yes. But I would just start with five stars and, you know, it was a miracle. I had worked with a bunch of five-star hotels, which was really, really awesome because when you go to those, they're really nice and they take care of everything. All your meals are included. You go on these beautiful tours. But the thing you don't get is really, you know, the human interaction in some of these three and four, five-star hotels. And what was fun when I did go to a hostel, which wasn't as nice, of course, is that you meet other travelers and you have fun and people are partying and drinking and you just have like a better overall experience. So you compromise on, you know, the quality of the room, but you have a great, you know, so I like to go back and forth between them. So, you know, I think most of the time it ended up being a three and a four star that would take me up on my offer. And it was typically your independent or your boutique hotels because the big chains, they've got kind of their, you know, their guys, but, um, you know, it it worked everywhere and it was really great. And I was always grateful, even if it was a hostel, like I worked as hard for the hostel as I did for the five stars, because, you know, if you're going to allow me to stay for free, I'm going to just try to go above and beyond and and do a great video or photos for you. So bar none, the best hotel you stayed in, which one was it? Was there one that you got to and you're like, oh, I don't want to leave this place. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was a lot. I mean, um, I'm trying to pull up the names real quick of uh, the, we were talking about Chile earlier and um, one of the really great hotels that I stayed in there was called the singular hotel and uh that was just a beautiful five-star hotel just the sprawling property in uh i always butcher the names but that was in southern chile so i mean that was a really great one um you know i stayed in a couple five-star hotels around lake malawi that were really really beautiful and um I wouldn't say I I have a favorite one because they were all just really, you know, I was always just really grateful to be in any of them, to be honest. Um, So, yeah, I mean, just any of them were were really awesome. Was there a couple of places you stayed and you said, okay, I know I promised to make these people a video or, uh, you know, shoot some photos, but it really looks like crap. And I'm just really hard. You don't have to name names, but did you get the place like, oh, I'm trying to I'm trying to, you know, put a hat on a pig here. Those were my favorites because what I could do is I could do that. Right. And so what ended up happening was, is I would end up taking such good or creative photos. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I would take such good photos that when people would come, they would get disappointed and say, this is, and so that actually happened a few times where they would have to take the pictures down because it wasn't a good reflection of what places were really like, and they were getting bad reviews. So that did happen a couple of times. I always liked working with the, with like, kind of the more rundown places because it it does make you have to like be more creative and work in different angles than maybe, you know, a, a beautiful five-star hotel. So you said you met uh, some women along the way. I mean, it does get lonely after a while. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure that's so, a big part of the book. 
Huge part. So there's two women in the book and, and I started traveling with my then girlfriend, Naomi. Uh, that's not a real name. So it's always kind of weird to call her that. But um, so we traveled for the first three months together. And this is such a huge part of the book, but it's it quickly unraveled because when you're traveling in Africa and you're on these buses and you're in close quarters 24 seven and good it's test not- of a relationship. Huge test of a relationship. (laughs) And unfortunately, I failed that. And um, it was just too hard for me to balance like this newfound creativity. I'm trying to be a photographer, a writer, a filmmaker. I'm trying to travel this really ridiculous way. I'm trying to balance this new relationship. And so like there's, you know, this is a really big part of the book. And then kind of she leaves and it's a very cheery goodbye in Tanzania of all places. And then, um, you know, part of the next year is kind of me trying to maybe get her to come back and vice versa. And so we kind of have this long distance. Should we try again? Should we not? And ultimately we end it. And then there's a second woman that I meet um, in Australia who was also traveling. So she was from um, actually uh, Amsterdam, but she's Moroccan descent. So I, you know, meet this beautiful woman uh, in Australia and it's kind of like this love at first sight thing. And then that kind of snowballs into this really intense relationship, which it takes up kind of the second half of the book. And so I don't want to give too much away because that's kind of the ending, but you know, there's a lot to, to the story. And then in, in between those women, there's not, there's no one because it was really like, I was so focused on like, it was hard to get across Africa. So like, as soon as Naomi left in Tanzania, like that's when I had to go through Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia, Sudan, Egypt, into the Middle East, and then across the uh, Mediterranean. So like, it was just so hard. Like the one thing that I will say that I missed out on is like, and obviously I'm not so young, but like kind of going out and having these wild nights and parties and things like that. But I was just really focused on kind of the task at hand at that point. Well, I mean, I give kudos to Naomi for even of all the legs she could have joined you on going right. through a bus in Malawi. I mean, she took the hardest Hardest. Way to go. I mean, <laughs> that and, was a I've test. All, and I put this too. like she and she's she's one of the best women in the world. But like I put this in the book, like she never rolled her eyes. She never gave a, a sigh. She never complained. Like you yeah. know, she, she she took it as like this really great experience. And I don't think many women would ever, ever, ever be up yeah. for that. You know, you know, most women would be like, you know, I'll meet you in France for that right, leg. Right, right, and right. then I'll meet you again in Australia. And that'll be that'll be cool. Or maybe yeah. Bali, maybe Bali at most. Bali, for sure. You for can sure. do the cargo ship on your own. Yep, <laughs> yep exactly. So again, this took uh, three years, four years, did yeah. you say? Sorry. So, yeah, and so three, four years. I know you get, this is probably the most common thing, and I don't like to talk about money, but I'm sure people are going to ask. And so I'll um, have to ask it. You don't have to give open. exact numbers. Yeah. I mean, did you come in under budget or did you uh, go over it? Or yeah, so no, this is actually a big part of the part of the book too, is that I, you know, when I initially gave myself that one year to learn about filming and photography and writing, I set the goal of $25,000. So I wanted to have $25,000 to travel around the world. And like, looking back, that's such a small, like, it's a lot of money, but not for three years to make it three years is not nearly enough. Right. And so when I sat down at the end of the trip and I calculated, okay, how much did I get in terms of like my meals were included, my lodging was included, the, some of the cruises I took were included. So like I added all that up into like a dollar amount. So like now I wouldn't have stayed at a five-star hotel because it would have been too expensive, but just for the sake of seeing how much I had bartered for, it was a quarter of a million dollars, which is just like mind-blowing. So 
I was able to barter basically for a quarter of a million dollars to go around the world for three years. When I started, all I was asking for was room and board. And this is a part of the book too. As I get to, I believe actually the first place I ever charged the fee was in Singapore. So when I got to Southeast Asia and then into Australia and even in the United States and and so forth and so on, I was able to get hotels to not only have me come and stay for free, but some places I would include a three, $400 fee for my services on top of staying for free. And that worked a lot of places as well. The other thing I would do is let's say like when I was back in, when I made it to Morocco, there's a ton of Riyadh's there. And one of the things that I did is I would email all of them. And if I had two, one or two say yes, uh, I would stay at those. So I'd say, I'm going to stay at this one for one week. And then I'm going to ask this one if I can come for week two. And then if I had a, ho- a third or a fourth or a fifth hotel co- um, say yes, I would say, well, I can't come and stay for free, but I'll charge you $500 and I'll come for the day and I'll do the photos and the film for you. So I was eventually staying in a hotel for free, making money off of them doing their film and photos. And then if I had extra hotels, say, come and stay for free, I would try to flip that into trying to make money. So I never spent the $25,000 that I started with. I, I mean, I did spend some of it, of course, but I never dipped below zero. I don't even think I dipped below 10,000, to be honest, because I wanted to have money when I came back to get an apartment and to write this book. So I wanted to at least have like a little cushion. And like the whole thing is really like, I'm not like, it, it was a miracle that this worked because remember I had zero experience and it was just hustling, but hu- I don't mean hustling them. I mean, me hustling and just working hard, trying to turn this dream into reality And there were definitely times where money was stressful because like, am I going to not be able to do this in Europe? Sure. It worked in Africa, but is it going to, who wants to do this in Europe? I didn't think it would work in North America across the United States. And it did. And um, so this plan just kind of slowly unfolded and I was able to make money. I did spend money. And then there was a couple of times where I had a few little sponsors here and there that would send me kind of a stipend um, to use their app or whatever, but that was just a couple hundred bucks um, a month, but all you need is a hundred bucks a week and you're good, you know? So what kind of gear were you, are you dragging around through all yeah. this and did it change? Did you have a, just a, a small laptop and a camera or yeah, was this there is more? One of my favorite questions because everybody, I would always see these people with these big, beautiful backpacks and I'm like, you know, and it's like a hundred pounds. And I'm like, what is wrong with these people? Like get something with wheels on it. Like, it's so like, is it not common sense? What are you doing with this 10,000 pound backpack? So the, the bag that I started with, and because money, I thought at the beginning was going to be an issue. I bought the bag that I used from the clearance aisle at Ross. So a discount (laughs) store and the clearance aisle at a discount store. And I'm really proud of that because it just shows like, you don't need the best gear. You don't need all these fancy backpacks. The camera that I used was a Canon 7D, which was a refurbished one. The lens that I bought with it was used. So like nothing I used was um, like brand new. I traveled with a MacBook, So that was how I edited things. And I would always turn around the film and photos before I would check out of a hotel. I had a little GoPro, but I was just really like bootstrapping it. And there wasn't like this great expensive equipment. And I didn't want to carry like a big backpack and heavy things because I'm getting on and off these buses. Like I want to be able to be light and move quick. So I only had like most of the time I had like seven or eight t-shirts, a couple pairs of shorts. I had two pairs, three pairs of jeans. I think I had a pair of sweatpants I bought in Australia and I didn't even have a jacket. The way that I got a jacket was I bartered for a jacket in um, Belgium, believe it or not, for that whole trans-Siberian thing. 
I just walked into a sporting goods store and this young kid was working. He seemed pretty cool. And I was like, Hey man, I'm about to go on the trans Siberian. I really need a jacket. None of these jackets fit, but there's happened to be this one beautiful jacket that fit me. It was double XL and it was like 300 bucks. And I'm like, I can't spend that much. And he's like, well, my dad's the owner of the store. I'm like, what if you give it to me for free and I'll write a little story about it on my travel blog. And then once I get to Asia, I'm going to take the jacket off when it's warm or warm enough and I will give it to a homeless person and then they can just keep it and you're kind of donating it to somebody in Asia. And he took me up on the offer and that's how I got this beautiful $300 jacket and I gave it to somebody in Vietnam. It was it was pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm sure that fit everyone in Vietnam. Right, right, right. There's somebody in Vietnam with this, just the sleeves hanging all the way. Yeah, all that's a blanket for the whole family. For sure. Because like that happened to me in Vietnam in particular. I was in Hanoi and somebody came up to me and, and just wanted to take a photo with me. Yeah. And they just see this, you know, big white guy, let's take a photo. And once I took, I said, okay, then all of a sudden people came out of the woodwork. They saw <laughs> I was cool with it. And then this person came up to me, wanted a photo, this person. And at, I mean, like I said, I'm six feet at six ten. That's how that it happened to you. In China. That, in like, China? China. Yeah. Okay. Was the biggest of like, and, I'll be honest, like it was fun to take pictures with people, but what people would do in China is they'd come up and laugh in my face. And I got like kind of annoyed. I'm not going to lie. Like yeah. it, was, it was funny the first 10 times, but when you do it like 30 times a day and like I got to the point where I really did not enjoy being in China and really only went out of my hotel when I when I really had to because it did become a thing. And it wasn't like a, a it wasn't like a good vibe thing. Like people would just, they wouldn't say anything. They would just come up and point and laugh and run away. And like, it wasn't that fun. Now people were super nice in China and they come up and we take pictures. It's, there's one of the pictures in, at the back of my book is me taking a picture with people in China. So it was fun at times, but um, you know, it, sometimes it can rub you the wrong way if people just kind of scream in your face and don't, you know, act nice. <laughs> well, they do like basketball in China. So maybe they, they could have, uh, you could have just told them you were some visiting. Right player sure yeah. just wear a track suit you know <laughs> wear a warm-up suit the whole time and you know yeah it could have you know been a fake celebrity there yeah, um exactly. so let's get to the book and how long it took you to write and is this self-published or did you find a publisher yeah. So one of the things that I did when I get, got back is I just said, all right, here's the money that I have left over. Let me get a little studio apartment and, you know, try to write this book. And um, that's pretty much what I did is I, you know, would spend five, six days a week writing. And then I transitioned my hotel photography into real estate photography because there's so many condos and houses that go for sale in, in South Florida. So I was able to make a living pretty quickly doing real estate photography, which only required me to work for one or two hours a day. And then the rest of the week or the rest of the day, I would, I would write. And then I worked with two professional editors over that time who were really, really amazing. And we, you know, we pitched it to a lot of, um, to agents, literary agents, but they just didn't think that in terms of for their side of it, they were going to be able to sell to, um, you know, the bigger publishers, I guess, travel memoirs are not really something they're looking for, even though it's an interesting story, an exciting story. You know, if you go to a bookstore, say you go to Barnes and Nobles, there's really no travel memoirs, right? It's all young adult fiction. It's, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And you go to the travel section, it's mostly travel guides. I mean, sure. I mean, I love yeah. Eat, Pray, Love is one of my favorite books. Wild is a great book. Yeah, there's some, are, you know, Bill Bryson books and things like that. Sure, you'll there's, have those. there's a couple, but they're, they're hard to find. So um, I guess just to make a long story short is that 
there were a lot of agents that were interested and they liked it, but they just didn't see it being profitable from their end, from the publishing end. And so I think that was actually a blessing in disguise because I learned the publishing industry pretty well the past six months. And then I decided to self-publish. And so, you know, that's the route that I went. And I think you know, that, to be honest, is the way to go um, if you know how to do the marketing. So I've taken a lot of book-specific marketing courses. Um, you know, I was able to build a social media, you know, following as I traveled. So, um, you know, I think that's going to help with with the sales. And, you know, also there's no middleman now that you don't have to share the, the revenue with. So I'm pretty confident that the book will be successful. And I mean, I hope it will be. Um, and I'm willing to, you know, just like I did with the hotels, just kind of willing to, to pedal it and push it and hustle and, and make sure that it, that it is successful because this is my passion. So it's on Amazon. Is that it's where on most Amazon. people can get it? Okay. Yep. And so we'll, sky's the limit. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll have a link to it too as, as well. And so the book's done. The trip is done. <laughs> what's next? I mean, where? what's the next adventure? You know, I've always said this, like, once I got this done, I would be at a real, like, crossroads, right? This was my deepest dream, not just the travel, but the whole transformation. And now, like, it's starting to come to an end. And now what? Now what? And I've just been so focused on, you know, tying up the loose ends with the book and and doing the marketing and things like that, that I haven't really looked past that. But I also think, like, hopefully the book can become successful and then it provides that next step that maybe I'm not even aware of. You know, I love to do some speaking. I love to share the story in other ways. Um, you know, so I, I hope that there's other avenues that will branch off of from this book. That's kind of the goal. And then, you know, in terms of traveling, like, I'm kind of traveled out. I mean, I know nobody's really left the house because of, you know, coronavirus for the past year or so. But, like, I haven't missed – and maybe you're the same way with all your travels. Like, yeah. I haven't really missed going anywhere. Where I mean, maybe I have a little bit of an itch now, but like three years on the road in hotels, like I don't really need that right now. <laughs> I'm good. I know. I get I mean, I got to say your timing was impeccable. Yeah. The minute you get off the road, there's a global pandemic and traffic shuts down. <laughs> so it's like you're in, under quarantine is a great time to work on a book. Exactly. And I'm hoping too, like that's a great time to sell it, you know, is because people can hopefully live vicariously through through the, the stories. Now, people wonder how I'm holding up. And I said, I do miss you know, all I took for granted of being able to, to get on a, a plane anytime I wanted, you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, you miss the freedom of that, for sure. but I really don't miss flying. You know, yeah. I, there's nothing about the actual travel. Like you just hear you describe those buses, just all like, these memories just flooded back to me. And yeah. like that part, I don't miss. And part of that is getting older, that being uncomfortable yeah. gets harder and harder. Me too. But the, I don't miss being in an airport. I, yep. I miss getting there. And I miss new cultures and I miss new environments and new things to see. Um, but the like getting the there. Of, the thought I, of like schlepping my stuff through the metal detectors. At yeah, airport, that, like, that's no. like nails on a chalkboard right now. <laughs> and it's going to be harder now with the uh, testing and everything else, right. you know, right. and everything's going to be a little more difficult. So uh, you were really lucky. And both of us, I guess, were that we traveled so much when we did. Yeah. Before yeah. all this, and things will open just, up again. But I mean, I was just saying that the other day yeah. to my dad, like, there's no way I would have been able to complete the journey had I started it. And, you know, I couldn't have started it during this time. So it would have been postponed. So, yeah, I mean, I got it in before all this happened. And so really fortunate timing wise, because, you know, there's just so many going to be so many restrictions crossing borders the way I did. That's I'm sure all that's going to change, too. Do you think you'll stay 
in South Florida or even in America as in the yeah, future? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things, I mean, I do like other cultures and things, but like, I do like being in America where the language is easy, <laughs> the living is easy, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, my favorite city in the world is London. Like I would love to live in London part of the year, but you know, the weather's really bad. I mean, looking at my window in Fort Lauderdale, it's beautiful and it's, you know, March. So can't complain with that. Right. I'm with you. Uh, London is one of my favorite cities in the world. And every time I'm there, I'm like, could I do it? Could I do it? And uh, just like, I think after living in uh, LA for 20 plus years, I just, I, I've kind of got addicted to sunshine. Yeah. And it is <laughs> as much as I love London to go there. And the, I mean, it's just, it's dreary so much. And I'm just going, yeah. I don't know if I could handle it now. Yeah. I probably could have 20 years ago, but, but when it's sunny, it is. The it's great. Best. It's yeah. great. Well, let me let me let me flip the script for a second because you're one of the only other people that I know that's been to Antarctica. Antarctica is my it was magical. It was my favorite place. We spent two weeks there. I mean, you know the whole Drake Passage, you yeah, that and everything. But we actually landed on the continent and walked around. You know, I think ten days in a row. And one of the days we had actually beautiful weather. It was like 35 degrees and not a cloud in the sky. I loved it. What did you think of Antarctica? Um, oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, I got I was on a smaller ship. So for people who don't know, I mean, the rule is if, if your ship's over 500 passengers, you can't get off it. And right. so uh, we were a smaller ship, but it was a six star luxury <laughs> cruise ship. I was just happened to be working on it. So we got to go off. I think I stepped on land about five days. Awesome. And uh, yeah, but just walking amongst the, the penguins and yeah. and everything else. I mean, but the and I did get one of those warm days that we were on the, did you go to that Chilean base? Yeah. So the, with all the penguins on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's like camera base and then there's yeah, a couple other Vidal, ones. Lots Argentina. One. Yeah. The best place I was, I don't know if you've been here is Orne Harbor. I don't know. I if don't you, know. I, there's different landings. So, I mean, it's all mm-hmm. different, but um, yeah, we had a small ship too. So I believe there was like 60 passengers and just a couple crew. So we were able to make, you know, two landings a day, which is like, Awesome. I mean, the thing that uh, really hits you down there and that really hit me that is that it's there's no people. I mean, that's there's just no civil. There's no cities. There's no towns. There's no there's nothing. So it's it's untouched. Mm -hmm. And that alone. I mean, how many places in the world can say that? None, really. So, I mean, it's that was the most amazing. The the silence at night when you I mean, even during the day, you walk out and there's nothing. You hear nothing. And just like how far away you felt, like one of the things I put in the book is like, you know, I, I felt not just far away from like where I grew up in Pennsylvania and living in Florida or even Ushuaia, which was close enough. But like I felt far away from the earth, <laughs> like, yeah, it was like you were on another planet, like and it's so hard to explain unless you've actually been there. But like and you're right, like the thing that is that is it is the silence. And I heard a, a, I'm sure you probably heard the sound, too, but like a glacier collapse one day mm-hmm. and you're just like this incredible thunder across like eternity. <laughs> and I'm just like, this is the best place I've ever been. This is awesome. Well, really after all this travel and, and we'll wrap it up this way, what did you learn not only about people, about the world, but about yourself? What did, what did all this teach you? Yeah. And I mean, I think that was the big thing, right? Like that's why I set out to do this. And what I learned, I'll start with people is that we're all very, 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 very similar, whether you're, you know, Christian, Hindu, hippie, Muslim, (laughs) Jewish, whatever the case may be, is that we all are so similar. And you see that. And I think traveling, you know, from my experience, and I would assume through yours is, you know, when you 
live amongst and you see other cultures and other races and other religions, you start to see how very similar we are. And I think the beauty of that is then it, you know, provides some sort of tolerance. And so you're much more understanding of different views and different races and religions. And, you know, I think that's obviously what's missing in the world right now, especially our country is that kind of inclusion and that tolerance. And so travel and this journey really opened me up to that. And just to see just how similar we really are, you know, mothers are mothers, fathers are fathers. And it's just like, it's a beautiful thing to see it all around the world. And then um, what I learned about myself was just like, I learned who I am, right? And like this whole new level of determination that I never knew existed. You know, I was kind of coasting through life, working this corporate career, never doing anything that really challenged me. And I, and I stuck with this massive goal, right? Like get around the world without flying become a writer, become a photographer, become a filmmaker with no experience. And I've said this many times, but there were many, many reasons to stop. And each one of them would have been justified, right? Every one of them, you would have said, yeah, that's go ahead. Might as well hang it up. Terrorist attack. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing with the camera. Yeah. Hang it up. You don't know how to write the story. Your blog broke down. You're not making any money. Yeah. Just hang it up. You're going to cross the ocean on a, on a cargo ship. Nah, might as well not do it. But like, for me, what I learned the most was just my dogged determination that I didn't really know that I had. I mean, I knew I was pretty tough, but I had no idea that I was this tough and that I was going to see every obstacle through and just keep going. No, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm glad you reached out and uh, I'm glad we met because that's a really yeah. cool story. And I can't wait to read the book. And Absolutely. you can send me a copy, right? You said I got that. you on the hook for ten for ten copies. Uh, so ten? yeah, just, <laughs> of course, man, I'll definitely get. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Absolutely, we'll stay on the line, and uh, um, I'll talk to you after, and I'll stop the recording. But uh, I appreciate you uh, reaching out, and appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much, man. This has been a blast. This sure, has been a lot of fun. Now, thank you, Eric Giuliani, everyone. 